please take a Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, if you will. It's page 300 in these Bibles in the pews. As we continue to look at the life of Elijah, this is the fifth sermon in that series. I'd like to welcome back some friends who were here for the Bullard wedding. Bob and Pat Connor over here. Jimmy and Susan Baird right here. Every time I say your name, people think Reverend Baird is here. And they, oh, where is he? Where is he? He's right there. Yeah, good to see you all. Uh, we've been studying the life of Elijah, and we come now to uh, what, what most people think of when they think of Elijah, and that's this contest on Mount, on Car- on Mount Carmel. Uh, it, it's really just one event out of a whole series of events, as, as you've been seeing, that God is doing a lot in a lot of people's lives, the Israelites, even in Ahab, the king, the wicked king, and in Elijah himself. I'd like to begin reading in verse 17. And then through verse 40. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Yeah, that's what it says. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. For with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. 
And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we're reading about something that happened almost 3,000 years ago, and we pray that you might give us understanding as to how you work, not only in history but also in our lives. We pray you feed our hungry souls. You say we do not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2002, a man named Malcolm Gladwell wrote a, uh, a bestseller entitled The Tipping Point. And it was kind of a catchy phrase, and he described the tipping point as kind of a magical moment when an idea or a trend or a social behavior crosses a threshold and it tips, that is, it spreads like wildfire. And he said just as a, a single individual who is sick can start an epidemic of the flu, so too can a small but precisely targeted push caused something like a fashion trend or the popularity of a new product or a drop in the crime rate. And one of the examples among many that he has in the book is Hush Puppy's Shoes. Uh, the brand was all but dead in the early 1990s. I had one friend who wore Hush Puppies in high school, and that was his trademark, and people laughed about it. No offense to those here that wore hush puppies back then. But in the 1990s, the brand was pretty much dead, and the parent company, Wolverine, was seriously thinking about phasing out the shoes that had made them famous in the first place but no longer were selling. But then something strange happened, and that is because of some uh, anti-establishment, you might say, youth in New York City, they began buying hush puppies because no one else would, and they wanted to be different. And then Manhattan designers began using them in photo shoots and in fashion shows, and it spread by word of mouth, and the popularity of the brand began to soar, as did the sales. And so those trends increased year by year, and in the mid-1990s, this brand that had almost been phased out went from an outdated style of $30 pair of shoes to where they were being sold in every mall in America. And in the space of two years, all that happened. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, would call that a tipping point when something reaches a, a popular phase like that. So here are the characteristics he gives of, a, of what leads to that. One, there's a contagiousness with a behavior or a message. Second, there's the fact that little causes can have big effects. Just like when a celebrity uh, uses a product that everyone notices. Third, 
that change happens gradually, not gradually, but at one dramatic moment. And that one dramatic moment is called the tipping point. Now, this is the tipping point in the story of Elijah. Uh, for If you've been with us, we've, we've looked at the chapter and a half leading up to this where Elijah comes before a wicked king Ahab who is described as exceeding his father and those all the kings before him in the northern kingdom of Israel where ten tribes were. The southern kingdom was, was Judah, and there were two tribes there. And uh, Ahab was a bad king in a long line of bad kings. And uh, his wife was even more wicked. She was from Phoenicia, a country to the north. She had uh, arrived there at the royal residence because of a diplomatic marriage that Ahab's dad had made with her dad. And she brings with her all her uh, 450 prophets to the god Baal, the god of nature, and 400 prophets to the queen goddess Asherah. And so uh, Elijah confronts him, and he, and he says, there'll be no rain except my mild word. And then three years later, the, we have that encounter that we began reading in verse uh, 17 or 18, where Ahab calls him the troubler of Israel. He hasn't seen him in three years. He said, you're the one that's brought this curse. And, and Elijah confronts him and says, no, it's you. You're the one that's done this. Uh, and so he calls for this uh, contest, you might say. This, this meeting of whose God is going to be shown to be real. And he picks a place called Mount Carmel. Some of you have been there. Uh, I have not. It's located near the border of, of Israel and what then was called Phoenicia. So they said it would be a good place. It seemed like a good place for the Phoenician God of Baal to meet Jehovah. And so it juts out, I'm told, into the Mediterranean. It's about 2,000 feet high and some historians look back and say it may have been, though we're not sure, the sacred ground to the worshipers of Baal. And perhaps Elijah chose that spot for that very reason, that in a sense he gave Baal home court advantage. And the contest is, is rather simple. Uh, Elijah told Ahab to bring not only the 450 prophets of Baal, but the 400 prophets of Asherah, the idols that represented Baal's wife. And it seems that only the prophets of Baal showed up. They're the only ones that are mentioned, the 450 false prophets, pitted against Elijah by himself. And this was at Elijah's request. So he, he's giving every advantage, you might say, to Ahab and to these, the Baal worshipers. In verse 21, I won't reread it, but everyone is there, and, and Elijah issues a challenge. And he's not speaking apparently to the prophets or to Ahab. He's speaking to the Israelites, to God's covenant people. And he says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So before anything happens, he, he, he gets before this huge crowd. I, we don't know how much time had passed when he had told Ahab, gather all Israel at Mount Carmel. So this, we could, I'll just call it a multitude. This multitude of people would have been there, and he, he confronts them. Why are you wavering between two opinions? I grew up playing baseball, and we had, in, back in those days, they had different names for the different ages of teams. You started with a farm team, then you went to Little League, then you went to Pony League, and then you went to Colt League, and so forth. So farm team was like an 8- and 9-year-old and some 10-year-olds, and Little League was 11- and 12-year-old, and then Pony League was 13 and 14. It was like that. Well, at the, at the younger ages, we never had t-ball, and we didn't have 
pitching machines. So you batted with a pitcher who was your age, and most of them couldn't throw straight. And if that, that was bad news if you're a batter. So there would be practices uh, when I was young where I would get hit by pitches five, six times, and the worst were when you turn like that and it hit you right between the shoulder blades. And so you'd get hit and hit and you'd go home bruised or if it hit you in the side. So I learned to fear the ball at a young age, and it made me an awful batter. Because what happens was, it, anyone that's played baseball, you've got to lean into and change, shift your weight and step toward the ball. But a person who's afraid of the ball, and it's, it's pretty common, steps toward third base. If not past third base, toward foul territory. You're stepping out of the batter's box, which means you're going to miss the ball. Unless it's an inside pitch, and then you might hit it. And so I, I got to... To pony, I got on up in the leagues, and, and I was having a terrible time with this. The coach would put a bat behind my, my feet to keep me, say, do not pull that left foot out of the batter's box. And one day, a coach, just to make the point, he wound up, and then he stopped. He didn't release the ball, and I <laughs> stepped toward third. He said, Chip, I haven't even thrown it, and you're already, you're already stepping down toward third. That is the exact same idea that Elijah's saying. Why are you stepping in a different direction? You're trying to go that way and that way at the same time. And with God, he's saying, you can't do it. That is impossible. Of course, there, there are other places in Scripture that talk about that. They had divided hearts. Apparently, they remembered the covenant promises. There may have been those within that, that thought, well, we'll have a little Yahweh worship with a little Baal worship and just kind of synchronize those together. Uh, there would have been those that would have been hard and fast Baal worshipers. There would have been some that may have been worshiping Yahweh, but they were very quiet about it so as not to fall under the, the sword of Jezebel. But for whatever reasons, they're, they're wavering they're wavering. They should be going in one direction, and they're trying to go in two. And he says, you've got to go in one direction. So make a choice, Elijah says to the people. Either serve the Lord or Baal. It's impossible to serve both, then or now. <clears throat> to choose Yahweh and against Baal and Asherah would mean condemnation because they would be defying the queen. Well, what's their response? There isn't one. Verse 21, second, the end of the verse. Not a word. Hey, anyone that, those that are parents and have small children, why are you doing that? I told you not to do it. The easiest way to be noncommittal is silence. Just don't say anything. And they didn't. So he urges them to make a decision. Now this is, this is key. I mean, this is just like today. One of the most highly regarded virtues in our day is uncertainty. I'm a seeker of truth. I'm on a journey to find truth. I mean, that's, that's, that's respectable. You'll get a pat on the back. You might even get a higher grade in an academic institution if you're that way. But if you say, I know the truth, I'm certain about something, oh, then you're just displaying that you're arrogant and ignorant and you really don't know anything. The only people that know anything are those who say that I'm, I'm seeking truth. I haven't found it yet, but I'm seeking and church-going people can lead the same kind of lives as these Israelites. 
Yes, we can say, oh, I worship Christ. God is everything to me, but I harbor my little idols of self-indulgence or lust or materialism. And so we limp, we step in two different directions, not steadily toward Christ. And Elijah demanded the people make up their minds. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. Could it be? Jim, I don't remember how many years ago y'all moved away. I mean, I've, in the years I've been here, could it be that someone has been sitting here all these years uh, for 10, 20, 30 years, and you still haven't committed to Christ? You're just, well, uh, yeah, I don't see any reason that he's, I really believe he's God, but I just put it off. Well, he gives a proof now. He gives a proposition. I won't spend a lot of time on it. Prophets of Baal, you have the first shot at the bull. Which one do you want? Go ahead and prepare it for a sacrifice. Get it ready. And then he says, I'll do the same. Make a long story short. But in verse 24, here's the bottom line. What's the purpose of all this? To see whose God will answer prayer. That's the bottom line. That's going to be the test of this whole contest. Is, is, I mean, that's the bottom line of the contest. Whose God answers prayer? The God of the Bible hears and answers prayer, we are told. And so we see their move to go first. They call on Baal. Verses 26 and following says, From morning till noon. So whether morning was 6 a.m., whether it was 9 a.m., I guess based on whether you're a college student, whether it was 2 p.m. in the afternoon, you know, up at the crack of noon or whatever, it's hours that go by. So hours pass, and they are crying out, Oh, Baal, answer us! 450, imagine. I mean, it wouldn't have been quite a scene. It wouldn't have been quite a spectacle. But then the conclusion by the writer of 1 Kings says, There was no voice. No one answered. And then they begin to dance. It says they limp. The other translations, though, they're, they're in these frenzied actions and accomplish nothing. And as they do this, Elijah responds to their prayers and to their dancing about this with holy sarcasm. Now, his reasoning may sound strange to us when he says, maybe he can't hear you, maybe he's away on a trip, so forth. But you see, in pagan religions, often the gods or goddesses carry out human activities. Uh, and so they, they eat, and they, they rest, they sleep, they... They do other things. And Elijah takes their beliefs and he ridicules them with their own beliefs. That's what he's doing. He's using what they have taught in sarcastic remarks toward them. And so in verse 27, he says maybe he's, he's occupied or using the facilities. Literally, that's what it said. And he, I mean, he, he was, Elijah was pretty tough. And I uh, said, maybe he's out of town. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe yell louder, louder, wake him up. And apparently they, they do that. And the frenzy continues to mid-afternoon. And the summary of all their efforts is in verse 29. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Have you ever heard anyone say, you know, it really doesn't matter what you believe, just so long as you're sincere in how you believe it? Look, that, from all indication, these people were sincere, at least some of them. They were devout. We would have called them committed to what they believed, but they had faith in the wrong thing. It doesn't matter how sincere your belief is if it's in the wrong object. 
and theirs was in the wrong object. And so then the, we come to the latter part in verses 30 and 37. Now it's Elijah's turn. Just briefly, he calls all the people to him. He repairs the altar. Uh, in many ways, this was symbolic of Israel's spiritual condition. It had been destroyed. It had been torn down. There were still remnants of it, but it wasn't what it was supposed to be. So he repairs it. And he's not proposing anything new. He's calling them to return to the worship of Jehovah God. Uh, he's not saying do something radically different. He's calling them to return in repentance to the covenant God. Then he, then he prepares the altar and he prepares it with the wood to burn the sacrifice with the pieces of the bull that he puts there. And then to everyone's surprise, he calls for water. Lots of it. Have you ever built a campfire? You don't want to, well, give me some water. We'll get this fire started. Now, how about some kerosene? How about something like that? But water, he drenches it. And he doesn't just drench it once. He drenches it three times with lots of water. It's running around in this trench that they dig around it. And the Israelites aren't foolish. They know wet things don't burn. We may think, boy, they sure were dumb. They thought water was going to be flammable. No, they knew wet things don't burn. Elijah had stacked the deck, you might say, against Jehovah. So when the fire would come, it would be quite obvious God had done it. That's, that's what he's doing. You know, it would be obvious that it was an act of God, and now he's ready. Now Elijah's approach is very simple. He prays. The prophets of Baal prayed aloud, cried aloud for hours, danced around the altar, cut themselves. I even left that part out a minute ago, cut themselves to show their sincerity. Look, we'll even give our blood for how sincere we are to you, Baal, to answer us. Send fire down on this. Now, look at verses 36 and 37. Here's the prayer. Okay, now here's what I want you to do, all right? The prophets of Baal had taken hours. Now, Elijah offers this prayer. I'm going to read it, and I want you to time how long it takes me, okay? All right, you ready? Go ahead, you can look at your watch. And when you don't, young people, look at your phone, but please look at the clock part. All right, it says, here, I'm going to start now. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. How long? 16 seconds. All right, or maybe nine. It's less than 30 seconds. Okay, so for our, did you say 16? So for, for hours this other's gone on, now in a matter of seconds, not even a full minute, he offers this prayer and boom, shot and all. It tells us in verse 38, the fire falls, poof, <laughs> everything is reduced to fine ash, including the stones. Now what's the response? There's two responses. First is worship, verse 39. The people turn. They realize their hearts were being prepared for this during the three years of drought. This, let's realize that. You know what a teachable moment is? <laughs> you know, when finally somebody really, and they ask you, hey, show me how to do that. That's a teachable moment, and you've got to seize them if you're a parent and you have small children. There are teachable moments 
after mistakes or after things happen, when you have somebody's full attention, this was the teachable moment. So the first response is worship. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The people bow down and say that. There's no doubt left. But the second is judgment. Uh, One of the commentaries I, I saw said, Some think Elijah acted wrongly here. Was this an act of vicious revenge? No, the reason we don't understand it is because we forget that Israel was a theocracy. Elijah was calling the people to act in accordance with what God had already said in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Here's what Deuteronomy... This is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 13 verses 12 to 15 where God said this, If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have known, Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. So God had already said the word of the Lord had already said back in Deuteronomy that if someone led Israel into idolatry then that person was to be put to death with the sword. That's what Elijah was having done. He was carrying out the word of the Lord. Now, for us moderns, we say, ooh, this is is rough. I mean, when you get into the genocide in Canaan, that is an apologetic issue today that many skeptics will bring up when you talk about the validity of the Bible. They'll say, well, I just don't think, I don't believe the Bible. Why? Because of genocide in the Old Testament. But don't forget how seriously God took idolatry. It was a great danger in Israel. The church today is not a theocracy. God does not call us to kill other people who worship false gods. But we should be aware of our tendency to have idols in our own hearts. And they may be very respectable idols. They may be very acceptable idols that we have. What are some lessons here of application? One, faith is a choice. Are you choosing to believe? When Jesus was with his disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee and they encountered this great storm that these seasoned, some of these seasoned fishermen feared for their lives, Jesus stilled the storm and then he rebuked them for their lack of faith. After all they'd seen, after the feeding of the multitude and, and so forth, the, the lesson of the loaves it's called to, why do you doubt? Why did you fear? And you can choose to believe. Now, how do you say, well, I don't have faith? Scripture gives a very simple formula. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. We expose ourselves to reading God's word and to hearing God's word preached and taught. And he uses that as a means to bring faith. But we still have to choose to believe. Second, believing and following go together. We need to remember that today... Sometimes a Christian profession seems to mean very little or nothing in terms of character or commitment. And these Israelites, at least some of them, thought they could straddle the fence. They could go in two directions. But that's impossible. Matthew six twenty four. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, he's speaking about there. 
In Revelation, you know the passage where one of the letters to the seven churches, the church at Laodicea, it says, I know your deeds, that, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of your mouth. Um, we serve a God who answers prayer. He invites us to pray to make our requests known to us. So much of the New Testament when Christ said, seek and ask and knock, and he gives these parables about the, the widow before the unjust judge who asked for justice from her neighbor. And, and God says that God is depicted as the judge, the unjust judge in the parable, and she keeps coming back and coming back, and finally the judge says, I'm going to give her what she wants, lest she wear me out. We have the the parable of the neighbor at midnight who needs three loaves of bread and he goes to his neighbor because his traveler's coming and it was customary and expected to serve them food. And he said, I need three loaves of bread. And the neighbor says, the, the door's locked. Everybody's in bed. Come back tomorrow. And he keeps knocking and knocking and knocking. And finally, the man gets up and gives him what he wants. And Jesus says, uses that parable to say that we should persevere in prayer, to keep knocking and asking and seeking God. So we serve a God who answers prayer. He invites us to pray and to make our request known to him. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to say it at the next service, and I wasn't planning to say it here. But I spoke at FPD's graduation yesterday to 2,000 people. One year ago, when I was in such a dark time, I could not speak to two people. I'm serious. If you had told me, Chip, you've got to stand up and speak to five people in a home Bible study, I would have said, I can't do it. And I was sitting on that platform yesterday, and I looked out at all those people before I got up, and I said, this is God answering the prayers of many of you who sent me cards and prayed for me. Thank you. Fourth, there's always hope. You are never too far from God. Note the phrase at the end of verse 37 in Elijah's prayer. And he says, answer me, O Lord, and so forth, so that they know that you have turned their hearts back. Did you notice that phrase? He wants the fire to fall so that they will know that you are receiving them back. Not just that you are God, but that God's people. It, you, there's always hope. You are never too far gone. The fire falling from heaven was to show not only the power of Jehovah, but also to assure them of his acceptance. Last of all, hearts can turn quickly to God. It's just amazing. It's amazing. Someone can walk in here or any other church where the gospel's preached and their whole worldview and their life turn upside down in a matter of like that because God's spirit works. And a number of you have experienced that. It's not due to some human person. It's God's spirit that he can quickly turn and it looks sudden, but there may have been years of preparation. The drought was a terrible thing, as I've tried to stress in the previous sermons. I won't repeat it now. But imagine three and a half years with no rain in a time in history and where they were. How many people would have died? How much sickness? Just the, 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 the terrible uh, oppression it would have been on the people. But in reality... That was a chastening from God preparing them for this moment. Now, I have the privilege as an elder, like other elders here in our church, to interview people for membership. 
And that's one of the high points of being in ministry, is to hear testimonies. How, how did you come to Christ? I don't think I've ever heard a single one where there was not some sort of um, some sort of pain or a, a bad experience that someone had gone through, maybe years before, uh, but I may be overstating the case. It's often the case that maybe someone said, well, there was a divorce, or my parents divorced, or there was alcoholism, or there was this, or, or uh, my health, or I went through a bankruptcy, or something like that that may have been years before, and now they don't necessarily associate that with them coming to faith in Christ, but I think God has a way of making us see the world without its glimmer. And it loses its luster. And we kind of arrive at where Solomon did. You know, that meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. You know, I tried all these things and they didn't fulfill me. And here, they had, they had worshipped Baal, and yet... In reality, the drop was a display of God's mercy and grace. And some of you are in the middle of one right now. I don't know your particular case. But you may say, well, spiritually speaking, I feel I'm in a drought. I feel I'm in a, a desert. I haven't talked to anybody about it. Uh, but I am. Don't lose hope. The clouds may be right around the corner that are going to bring a storm like you won't believe. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we see your sovereignty all through this story. We see that you're in control of all things. We don't understand all of your ways. We, we can't put all the pieces together uh, here, and yet uh, you, you know so much more. We know so little. We see you on such a small perspective, and you see all of time laid out before you, all lives, uh, all of history. And we pray that we, like these people that heard Elijah's challenge, would take to heart that, that we really we can't pursue other gods and pursue you at the same time. And we pray that we would choose to believe that we would um, meditate on your word and that you would increase our faith through that. And we thank you for Christ, our Redeemer, in this uh, brief life. In Jesus' name, amen.